0: All right, the rest of us, let's turn to Matthew chapter (coughs) 1. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to spend two weeks now uh, looking at and learning from uh, Matthew's Christmas narrative in chapter 1, chapter 2 of Matthew's gospel. Some of you may know this, some of you may not. I didn't grow up with Christmas. Our family didn't celebrate Christmas. Um, It was, uh, I grew up in a small independent Baptist church and uh, the pastor and his wife caught on to the fact that Christmas Day and the uh, holiday itself had derived from pagan roots. Um, That's just a historical fact. As a matter of fact, uh, probably happened around the time of Constantine or under his influence. He was trying to Christianize the pagan Roman Empire. And um, they had a holiday on December 25th. They celebrated the, the sun god Mithras. And it probably worked out in such a way that he combined the birth of Christ and the celebration of it with this uh, God, uh, false pagan god's birthday and that's how we, we end up with Christmas Day on December 25th. No serious, reputable scholar believes that Jesus was born on December 25th. This was uh, an invention of pagan roots. matter of fact, some of our traditions like mistletoe and uh, decking the halls with boughs of holly and uh, yuletide and those types of things have pagan roots. They were used in pagan celebrations. So this pastor... And his wife decided that Christians shouldn't be celebrating Christmas. So I never had Christmas. And that's why I referred to him as uh, Pastor Grinch who stole my Christmas. (laughs) Growing up in the U.S. as a kid with no Christmas was no fun. Um, But it was what it is. And uh, my parents eventually changed their mind as we became adults and we had kids and such and began uh, celebrating Christmas again. But if you think about the Christmas season now, it's becoming increasingly pagan, less about Jesus and more about things that he seems to really stand in opposition to, like excessive consumerism and covetousness and a focus on worldly treasures and things. But I do believe that Christmas is worth redeeming and we're celebrating. That's why we celebrate it. That's why we talk about it. That's why I'm going to give two Sunday mornings of messages to it. And I usually do that every year, at least one to two messages devoted to Christmas. We celebrate the Advent season. We read scriptures for it because I think it is worth keeping for the Christian if through it we glorify God by keeping Jesus at the center of it all. If we do that, then it's worth redeeming. Otherwise, it's at best just a family holiday of family traditions that can be fun, and at worst, it's uh, all sorts of things that the Christian shouldn't be fixated on and focused upon, okay? So my goal then this morning is to look at Matthew chapter 1, and specifically the genealogy, but I'm going to do... I'm going to do this week and next week is not just go by paragraph by paragraph through Matthew 1 or 2. I want to draw out some main ideas about this Christmas narrative generally and, and Matthew's introduction to Jesus and learn what we can learn about that in order to glorify God and keep Jesus at the center of this holiday season. So let's read Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abayud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pause and pray. Father, this is a remarkable account of your working in the world, in history, to give us a Savior, to present to us a son, your son, And I just ask that you would please help me to preach and teach this morning in such a way that we learn and that we're edified and that we're encouraged and that we find joy in Jesus during this time. I pray for your spirit to glorify the Son, which is His one of his primary missions, to glorify the Son in our hearts and minds. And so we ask for that this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. Matthew's gospel, as we've learned, we've studied through Matthew's gospel now, 25 chapters of it anyway. Matthew's gospel and the Christmas narrative that he presents here is an account and a story, a narrative of introduction and identity introducing us to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we've been learning, right? Who He is, what He did, what He taught. You get from the very outset of this gospel, I mean from the very first verse, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, that what He's about to present to you is about a particular person. This is about, this isn't a a book on helpful topics for us, or interesting history. Matthew is interested in presenting us a new book of rules and laws. This is a book about a person, Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the Messiah. We've talked a lot about this in our study of Matthew's Gospel, but I don't think we can hammer in on this point enough that Jesus is the point of the book of Matthew. That ultimately, friends, Jesus is the point of the Bible. And Jesus is the point of this Christmas narrative Matthew wants you to get your attention on this one Jesus Jesus is to be the center of our faith now it's important to remember that we also we believe in God the triune God God in three persons father son and holy spirit in Matthew's gospel is trinitarian to the core. I mean, right in the beginning here, verse 18, you're introduced to the Holy Spirit already in his work in bringing forth the son of God, right? And that miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit. In Genesis or uh, in Matthew chapter 3 when Jesus steps on the scene publicly after he's all grown up and his public ministry is going to launch, He submits to the waters of baptism by John the Baptist. And, of course, there you have all three persons of the Trinity represented. The Father speaking from heaven, blessing upon His Son. You have the Son in the waters of baptism, and you have the Spirit descending on the Son like a dove. Matthew's Gospel concludes with the doctrine of the Trinity, where Jesus says, Go make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name, singular, of the father and the son and the holy spirit. So when i say that Jesus is the point of Matthew's gospel or that i when i say that Jesus is the point really of the entire scriptures and of christmas season don't hear me saying that we push to the side so to speak the father and the spirit as though they're not important. But friends, there is a way in which God has designed this new covenant age to be an age in which you and I place our faith uniquely in God incarnate. The Son of God become flesh, the man Jesus. And there is this uniqueness to this new covenant age in which your faith rests uniquely in this man, in him. And his person and work, it's like all of Scripture just shines in now on him. We are followers of Christ. We're disciples of Christ. We're sheep in the pasture of Christ. And he is our chief shepherd. He is our great high priest, right? He is our king. He is the pioneer of our faith, the author to Hebrews says. And as we run this race with endurance, we're to keep our eyes fixed on him. He is the one, as we've learned in Matthew's Gospel, to whom we must go through in order to get into the kingdom. He is the one we must face and go through in order to get into the kingdom. It is in Him and His name uniquely we are to trust and believe in order for the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit and eternal life. It is in the Son incarnate the lord jesus christ it is through him salvation comes matthew chapter 21 or chapter 1 verse 21 she will bear a son you shall call his name jesus for he will save his people from their sins he is the divine rescuer god in flesh god incarnate what we celebrate at christmas time God becoming man, the Son of God, becoming man to rescue us from our sins. Peter, when he was preaching in Acts chapter 4 verse 11, said this, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, no other human name, given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the one that we must look to. Matthew's gospel hones in on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can put our faith into him. And of course, Matthew's desire is that you are saved through faith in Jesus. This is the point of it all. We need to keep are Christmas thoughts directed towards Jesus. This is what it's about. And to the degree we can keep Christmas about Him, God providing the Savior in the incarnate Son of God, as long as we can keep it about that, it brings glory to God. This is what He wants. And it brings attention to His Son. You know, at what other time of the year can you walk through the mall, Aaron brought this out a week or two ago. You could walk through the mall and hear a song like this, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. These are words that right now are in Christmas movies, out in department stores. What other time of year do we get that kind of opportunity? That is why I would humbly disagree with my childhood pastor. See, this is worth redeeming here. This is worth taking and promoting it. This is why Christians shouldn't back away in Christmas time. I mean, we've all noticed and probably been frustrated to a degree that the secular culture is attempting to take Jesus out of Christmas. That's most noticeable in our Christmas greetings. If you want to be politically correct, friends, do not say Merry Christmas. They don't want you to say, they don't want you to say, happy holidays. You know, when we get, we get a little frustrated, I know we're all, most of us are probably very conservative uh, Christians and we get frustrated with that kind of thing and we get frustrated with those people. But understand, there's a greater force at work behind that. See, it's not them necessarily, it's the devil that drives their thinking, The one thing the devil does not want is a promotion of Jesus, the name that's been given by which people can be saved. This is his work to blind, blind the eyes of the unbelievers to, as Paul says, keep them from seeing the glory of Jesus Christ as we have seen. This is a work of the devil. If Christians continue, though, to promote Christ during this time of the year. If our churches continue to promote Jesus at this time of the year, if Christians are known for the focus upon Jesus and the celebration of uh, the Son of God becoming flesh, if we focus on that, then we redeem what even the devil is trying to get rid of. And Jesus stays at the center of it. Now, friends, I want to make a word of application here to some of you for whom Christmas is not a very joyful occasion. And there are many, many people like that. It may be just this year, or it may be every year. Now, if you're the type of person in here that you were uh, putting up your Christmas lights and your Christmas tree on Halloween, um, Christmas music already blaring, then you, this you don't understand what I'm saying here. But many people, for the many people... This time of the year is a depressing time of the year. It's a very hard and difficult time of the year. Could be for a number of reasons. Could just be the general busyness of it or the stress of it. For some, it puts on uh, financial constraints. Others have to get together with family that, well, frankly, they'd rather not get, in, uh, get together with. And for some of that, there's dread. Others, it may be a little more serious than that. There's sorrow because of lost loved ones or a lost loved one, where there's memories in Christmas but you realize they're always in the past with this particular person and this year. It comes around and these, these wounds are reopened and for many this is very sorrowful. For some, your history in Christmas may be growing up in um, a family that was broken or abused alcohol uh, especially during this time of year or whatever it could be this could be a season for you of heartache maybe you're just uniquely suffering right now with dread and depression how can you walk through this Christmas season with joy with God glorifying joy how can you do that in the midst of sorrow the only counsel I would have for you is this. You have to look to Jesus. You have to make this holiday all about Him. You have to rejoice and celebrate the fact that God sent forth His Son for you. And think about the blessings of knowing him and the forgiveness of sins you have and the promises of eternal life. I mean, you just look to Jesus, celebrate it as it's designed to be celebrated. You're celebrating Christ Jesus. Look to the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Obey the command of Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 Rejoice in the Lord. Always. Again, I will say rejoice. You notice what he says here. Paul, as he's imprisoned in Rome and suffering himself, you understand what he's saying here. Rejoice in the Lord. As though what Paul has learned through his own suffering is that the one true source of the one source of true joy at all times and in all circumstances is. Is Jesus? That is when the Christian by faith looks to Jesus, the Spirit can enable the Christian to find joy in Him no matter what's going on. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have been called in this life to suffer in numerous ways and yet you retain joy, not in the circumstances or in the sorrow or the loss, but you find that joy in Jesus. That's what you can do. Look to Jesus until you get the joy. I believe the joy in the Christian's heart and life is theirs by right. Not of their own doing, but because of what Jesus has purchased for them. They have the grace-given right to joy in their hearts and lives. But to get it, they have to look to Jesus and keep looking to Jesus. Then they could be like Paul and suffer the loss of all things and be sitting in prison in Rome, awaiting trial before Caesar, and still have joy in his heart and encourage others to find joy as well. I love that God brought Paul through so much suffering so that no one can say, yeah, but Paul, you just don't understand. You don't understand suffering. No, he understood suffering. But he also understood joy in the Lord. So make it about Jesus. Look to Jesus. And when I say it's yours by right, I mean this. You should actually go to God in the name of Jesus in a very bold way and say, I need joy. And then look at Jesus in the Scriptures. And meditate on Jesus in the Scriptures and pray until you have it. It brings God glory when they pray Scripture to Him and He answers those prayers, like giving joy when it doesn't seem the person should have joy, and He gives it anyway in His Son. And they bear fruit. Joy is a fruit, by the way, of the Spirit, He produces it. And then God is glorified in that. So if you're struggling, particularly at this time of year, if you're struggling any time of the year with depression, as many of you are, you look to Jesus. He is the light. And the light shines in the darkness, John said, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, I love, one of my favorite portions here is in chapter 4 of Matthew's Gospel. In verse 12, Jesus, here in his public ministry, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now remember, we've said before that everything Jesus does, he doesn't do just arbitrarily. He does purposely, okay? There's a purpose in this. Why did he go up into the northern tribes of uh, Zebulun and Naphtali, the very despised place of Galilee? far away from Jerusalem and the temple. Verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And here it is. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. It was called that because of where it was located in Israel's history. It was always the first to be invaded, constantly be invaded by the Gentiles. It became known as a land of darkness The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned, and his name is Jesus, you see. Are you sitting in darkness right now? When you're sitting in the darkness for any reason, any suffering brought upon your life, Jesus is the light that if you look to him, he dawns in your heart. The Spirit brings the light of joy on this one. And isn't it interesting how Jesus himself went into the darkness? He's no stranger to it. He did that for you, friends. So you can look to him now. So this is a story. This is a narrative. This is a book all about Jesus and his identity. But what should also stand out to us in Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2 as we read these Christmas narratives is this fact. That Christmas is a story also about history. It's a historical record. I think in part... That means that we are to read it in that way. These are actual factual things of history that we put our confidence in that this really happened. This isn't written as some fictional writing. This isn't uh, mythological. Uh, These aren't fables. This is actually true. That's why in verse 18 he says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. This is how it happened. This is what really happened. This This is an act of history. But I was thinking as I was reading through and pondering this genealogy in chapter 1, that is, just tracing Jesus' lineage. I was thinking about the history of that, because in this, these names that he has chosen here, you have really a synopsis of the history of Israel, Jesus' family. You have the tracing of his lineage. Of course, Matthew's main intention is to show him as the rightful heir to the throne. Right, The Davidic throne, the fulfillment of the Davidic promise to send a forever king, that's him. But, but there's just history here. And Jesus was born into this with a, with a history, with a connection of God's working in a particular people, the Jewish people, to bring him into this world. And we realize that all of our Old Testaments are a record of God's working to do just that. You realize in one chapter that that what God was doing this whole time in all those stories and accounts you read about in the Old Testament, sometimes you're like, why is this here? Here's why it's here. To give you that historical record of the family of Jesus so that God can bring in his son in order to redeem the world. You see the Old Testament like that, it brings it alive, doesn't it? You see what God is doing through working all this out to bring in his son? Well, friends, that's what God is doing right now, isn't it? Is he not continuing this historical work, really, throughout this whole world, guiding all things, every event, all nations, everything that happens right down to your life, that what happens into the whole world is all to usher in his son the second time. You see, time, Paul said this about the first advent, Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, when the fullness of time had come, I mean, when the time was right, when the stage was set, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And when the time is right again, as Jesus is reminding us at the end of Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew 24 and 25, when the time is right again, when the Father determines that the time is right, the fullness of time has come, He'll send forth His Son again. We are living through the history of God's two advent plan right the first advent of christ and then the second advent and we're in the middle of that now and we're seeing how god is playing all of this out we as christians should have a view of the events of our world past and present that is different than anyone else where they just see chaos we see order and direction we see purpose We see it all working towards a particular event, God fulfilling His promise to send His Son again. Helps us make sense of all this. And you know, I think of all that history in the Old Testament, I'm sure there were many times throughout all that history when things looked grim to the people living in it, where they didn't quite understand what God was doing or how this was going to pan out or how this was going to work. The children's church lesson this morning, and I know this because my wife is presenting, is out of Daniel, the time of captivity. How bleak did things look then? They had been exported out of their land. How, how's God going to work this all out to fulfill His promises? What is God doing? Why is this happening? Why is He allowing this? What about His covenant promises? You know, what we see when we look at the history of Jesus That God was working in and through it the whole time. Working towards the goal of sending His Son, the promise of sending His Son, which He did fulfill that promise, and He will do it again. You may not understand, as they didn't, what God is doing. You may not understand how in your own life the things God has brought into your life is fulfilling His forever promises to you and for the world but he doesn't need you to understand them. He needs you to trust him and keep looking and waiting for his son. And as you peruse this genealogy, depending on how familiar you are with the Old Testament writings, as you peruse this history of Jesus' family, you quickly find that it was a pretty dysfunctional family. Do you have a dysfunctional family? Jesus knows exactly how you feel. It was a dysfunctional family, distorted, sin-riddled, broken. You very quickly find that God's working to bring in His Son through that particular people, the Jewish people, had to be done at times, even in spite of what they were doing. Overriding and overruling His sinful people in order to fulfill his saving promises in Christ. You know, I think about the most prominent figure of this genealogy, King David. He's the most prominent figure in this genealogy. Jesus is being presented here, of course, as the son of David. Remember, God made a promise to David that he would have a son, someone that would come from his lineage, that would reign over his forever kingdom, right? David was, of course, The man after God's own heart, hand-selected by God after Saul's tragic failures. This whole structure of his genealogy is structured around David. The number 14 being very significant. Not that there were literally 14 generations, friends. Understand that. There were more than that. But the reason he structures this genealogy on that number 14, any Jewish person that would have been familiar with the way they worked their alphabet, each letter of the Hebrew alphabet had a numeric value. And that was important to them to do at times. Do you know what the numeric value of David's name in the Hebrew was? 14. Do you know what number he is listed on this genealogy? Number 14. 14. And that's why he structured it as he did around that Babylonian captivity and the 14 generations and such to point to this very prominent figure, a hero of the Jews. And yet, look at this embarrassing detail that Matthew slips in in verse 6. Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That seems unnecessary. A little bit of a dig. I mean, he could have just said, Solomon, uh, uh, David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. There might have been a little reminder in it. But to bring Uriah into this equation... Wow. Do you remember who Uriah was? One of David's mighty men. He was out battling for David as David stayed back in the kingdom and saw Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, desired after her, brought her to his home, committed adultery with her, impregnated her, attempted a cover-up, and had Uriah, one of his mighty men, faithful followers, had him murdered on the front lines. Tried to cover it all up. What an embarrassing detail to have brought out, to be aired out like this. Why would Matthew do such a thing in the lineage of Jesus? Well, I think first of all, because Jesus came to save sinners and David was a sinner You know, Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners so that no sinner would be discouraged at any time when they feel their sense of sin and their need of forgiveness and no matter how bad they've blown it and what they've done, they can go to Jesus and find forgiveness and salvation. No one is excluded from the offer of the gospel. Nothing that has been done is unforgivable. What a marvelous thing, isn't it? This is truly a story for sinners. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Or one of the things, this is a good story for sinners. This is good news if you're a sinner and you know you need salvation because God has sent forth His Son. But I also think that we can see that again, even through all that sinful history and even the man after his own heart and his own king, and they're committing these sins, no matter all that's happening, God was in control and He was turning it all for good. He would override things like David's sin and direct it and turn it in such a way that it ended up with Jesus being born. He uses it for the salvation of the world. Isn't that amazing? Do you know that the marriage of David and Bathsheba should have never happened? This was an ungodly union from the beginning. And yet God took that ungodly union and used it for His own glorifying purposes, for His glory and your eternal good, friends. Because it was through that union that He brings in the Messiah Isn't it just like God to do something like that? Those of you that know him and have known him for a while and you're familiar with his word, isn't that just like him to do it just that way? Could have done it any way he wanted to do it. Could have brought in the son any way and he chooses to do it through such a sin-distorted, riddle history, turning some of these stories, and there were more in there that we could go through that are almost embarrassing to teach in front of anybody under the age of 18. It's a very TV-14 and sometimes TVMA experience reading the Old Testament. But this is the way that God has decided to do it. And it's just like Him to do that. To take a sinful situation like that that had, well, it had the devil's fingerprints all over it. To show His sovereignty and His grace and to work it for good. And we know that makes sense for God to do that because we know this, Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And we know that because of what I recently heard this week called the Genesis fifty twenty rule. Have you ever heard that one? This is where Joseph tells his brothers at the end of the story after they had betrayed him into Egypt and Had him enslaved there and all the suffering he went through. He said, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is the way God does things. Friends, He can even take your failures, your sins, your backslidings, and bring some redemption to them. Isn't that amazing? He's a God of restoration and renewal. He is a wonderful God. But most of all, I think Matthew chose to do it this way, of course directed by the Holy Spirit to bring in all these sinful accounts, is to make Jesus stand out. Nobody in the history of Israel is going to eclipse the glory of Jesus Christ. Even great King David. It's to make Jesus stand out for his righteousness and his integrity and his sinlessness and his love and his grace and his mercy. He is the hero of the story. Do you know some say, I've heard people say this, and I, I understand what you're saying, and I, I've said it at times myself on certain occasions, but it's the idea that I don't wanna I don't want to air out my dirty laundry for everyone. Right? So sometimes we just don't want to share obviously everything we've done. Sometimes that's not even that's not even wise to do, okay? But we we have this sense where, like, I don't want to air out my dirty laundry to everybody to see. But you know, when I think about the history of, of the Old Testament, and I think about the history of the Jewish people, it's like one extended clothesline that God has hung up. Not in the backyard, but the front yard. And he runs along with his people, clipping up all their unmentionables to flap in the wind for all the neighbors to see. So that he could tell the story of one with no dirty laundry at all. One with nothing to hide. Nothing to be ashamed of. We'll go through Matthew 26 and 27 soon and you have those trials of Jesus. The trial before uh, the Jewish leaders. The trial before Pilate. And in those Jesus has nothing to hide. In order to find something against them, Matthew makes this clear, they had to find false witnesses, people willing to lie in order to bring a charge against him. He is truly the spotless and sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And how does he do that? He goes to the cross and publicly bears the shame. He publicly bears the guilt. He publicly bears the dirty laundry for all of us, friends. You ever notice how public the crucifixion was? You know, even nowadays if you're going to put somebody to death in a state, you can't broadcast that. Jesus was public the shame associated with it. He bore it for us. So that, friends, in the end, through Christmas, through the Scriptures, in our lives, Jesus gets all the glory. And that goes on for eternity. Jesus gets all the glory. Let's make sure our holiday season... No, no, no. Let's make sure our Christmas season... I was kind of lumping it in with New Year's, but no, let's just stick to it. Our Christmas season is about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as always, we thank you for sending your son. We pray for you to send him again to usher in his kingdom of righteousness. And in the meantime, let us bring glory to him and we pray again for the mercy and salvation to appear to many, many people. Our loved ones, Lord, all of us are praying for loved ones to be saved. All of us know people that we want to see come to know Jesus. We pray for them. We pray that you would, Spirit, would shine the light of Jesus into their hearts and minds even now. That we would be faithful witnesses. And even in our sins and failures around those around us, as we we display them all the time, that even those would be used by you to make Jesus look even better more glorious to the individuals. We pray this in his name. Amen.